Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan with another episode of the Influence Continuum. And I've been looking forward to today's talk with two scholars, uh, people that I respect so very much. Uh, I'd like to introduce Frederick Clarkson first. Uh, Fred has written about politics and religion for four decades, and he interviewed me four decades ago when I got out of the Moonies, I will add. Uh, his work has appeared in a wide range of publications from Mother Jones, Church and State, Ms. Magazine, Christian Science Monitor, Religion Dispatches. He's worked as an investigative editor, Planned Parenthood Federation of America, uh, communications director at the Institute for Democracy Studies, co-founded the group blog Talk to Action. He's the author, co-author, and editor of several books, including Dispatches from the Religious Left, The Future of Faith and Politics in America, and Eternal Hostility, The Struggle Between Theocracy and Democracy. He's currently the Senior Research Analyst at the Political Research Associates, which is a progressive think tank in Somerville, Massachusetts. And I just want to credit Frederick helped me so much when I was researching the cult of Trump. And that term is now worldwide, cult of Trump, cult of Trump. Uh, and I thank you, uh, Frederick, because you really educated me as well as helped to edit some of my writing to make sure it was correct. So, um, and we have done previous interviews. If you like this one and you want to check out previous ones on Freedom of Mind, please do. And distinguished scholar, uh, Andre Gagne, who I've had the pleasure to interview also. Andre Gagne is a full professor and chair of the Department of Theological Studies. I'm going to ask you, Andre, to explain your conjoint PhD is from? Université Catholique de Louvain, that's in Belgium, yes. uh, with uh, l'Université de Montréal. Fantastic. So you are uh, a former pastor of a new apostolic reformation group when we first met, but you have gone on to uh, research and, and teach about this. You, I will also add that in 2023, you were appointed as a member of the National Expert Committee on Countering Radicalization to Violence with Public Safety Canada. You're also a member of the Center for the Study of Learning and Performance in Concordia, which is a university where you teach, and a research associate with this, uh oh, I'm going to butcher it. <laughs> Can I ask you to say the French? Yeah, it's, a, it's essentially a center for the study of religion in the contemporary yeah, world. Fantastic. So, yeah. You've been interviewed <laughs> over 300 times in a million media outlets, New York Times, Washington Post, Guardian. Uh, New York Times Literary Supplement, New Republic. You're a scholar, and I want to uh, do this because you have a new translation of the original French publication. It's called American Evangelicals <laughs> for Trump, Dominion, Spiritual Warfare, and the End Times. That's now published in English, and thank you for holding it up to Frederick. We got, we got two plugs for your book, Andre. So... It's 2024. We're in election year. It's not just elections in the United States, but all over the world. And the phenomenon you both study is a worldwide phenomenon. So it's of great interest. And we hope to get people all over the world listening to today's talk. 
And with that, I'll ask Frederick, if you don't mind, uh, set the table for what we're dealing with, and then we can dive into the scholarship of Andre uh, with the theology and such. Well, sure, just in a, in a very broad sense, uh, we're probably talking about something that most people have never heard of, the New Apostolic yes. Reformation. What in the world is that? And at least the way I've written about it, it's the cutting edge of, uh, of the Christian right these days. And how did mm -hmm. that happen? Well, the, uh, the Pentecostal and Charismatic movement, which Andre can talk about in greater detail, is, you know, is the second largest grouping of Christianity in the world, and probably the only mm -hmm. significant growth sector. You know, as including in the United States. So people who aren't familiar with Pentecostals and Charismatics, you can see their characteristic worship style of having hands in the air, sometimes palms raised, praying in tongues, uh, things that are very unusual to many other Christians, but nevertheless are, are, are a central cultural force. That said, they've got the, this movement to, of the New Apostolic Reformation is very politicized. Once upon a time, Pentecostals are not much political at all. They were uh, uh, been basically on the political sidelines since the Scopes trials. But through a series of theological changes, they've become more political and more theocratic in their orientation. At the same time, politically active as a central feature of the Christian right. They become very important and visible to us because when we see religious leaders laying hands on Donald Trump in the Oval Office, those famous pictures, most of them are yep. NAR apostles. His spiritual advisor, right, going back since before he was president, is Paula White Kane, who is an apostle. And, uh, you know, in her moment, <clears throat> one of the most prominent female religious leaders in the world, who has the ear of the president of the United States, and is still leading, you know, uh, evangelicals for Trump in his reelection effort to this day. So people who haven't heard of it should feel like they're being given a great disservice by the political mm. community you know, across a wide spectrum, and the media that has simply saying, well, they're a bunch of white evangelicals. Well, it's more complicated than that. And uh, I think it's really, we, we owe it to ourselves and to democracy to really try to come to grips with this. It's eat your broccoli time as far as the New Apostolic Reformation is concerned. Yeah, and I, I'm going to say as uh, a, uh, a Jew, a progressive Jew, my understanding of Christianity over the decades was that you have a relationship to Jesus uh, and not to an, a living person who claims to be an apostle or a prophet who gets direct revelations and your faith and obedience is to that person because you're so afraid of demonic possession that they cover you and protect you from these demons. And that resonates with my time in the Moonies, where I was shown the exorcist and told the demons were possessing anyone who had doubts about following Moon, the Messiah, 100%. So I just wanted to shape that. And I'll say one more thing and then go to Andre. And that is the Christians that I know and hang out with they're not about money and politics and power. In fact, they decry uh, those prosperity ministers who say, give me money and God will bless you, you know, tenfold, put it on your credit card. And they have mansions and yachts and corporate jets. So there's a very big difference between being humble and poor and taking care of the, you know, immigrants and the, and the sick. 
versus we need to take over the world and take over politics. So I just wanted to insert, forgive me, Andre Gagne, yeah. please share. <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you so much, uh, Steve, for uh, this invitation. Uh, had the pleasure to be on your uh, show several times. Uh, yeah, and, and thank you for this opportunity to talk about this uh, new uh, book, which is new up to a certain extent, because uh, just to contextualize this uh, very briefly, uh, in 2020, I had published a French version of this book, um, and uh, it sold pretty well. You know, people in the Francophone world, especially Europe, were very intrigued with uh, neo-charismatic Pentecostals, like I call them in my book, and especially the new apostolic reformation and they were wondering what was happening in the US you know the relationship between between religion and politics because you know there's a lot of secular uh people in France for example that don't understand this uh, close proximity between uh, uh faith and politics so it was intriguing for them and uh, it was great uh, but uh, some Americans that do read French uh were uh were kind of uh, insistent on saying you should get this book translated. And uh, so eventually, through a, you know, a bunch of uh, uh, circumstances and connections, we did get the book translated. But the book is slightly different than the French version, where I add an important preface to the book, trying to explain certain things that I hadn't uh, sufficiently unpacked in the French edition. And I also added an epilogue, which is the after 2020 election. So, you know, the Trump political legacy. Very important. And what's important in that book is 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 introducing what, what Fred was talking about. Uh, people are very uh, familiar with evangelicals in general, but there's a strand of evangelicalism uh, that is often labeled as either uh, neo-charismatic or neo-Pentecostal or Pentecostal that people don't know as much and I do unpack that because I, I don't focus on evangelicals in general in my book. I look at the neo-charismatic Pentecostals close to Trump and to political power. And then I frame this in the context of a movement or at least a way of understanding uh, apostolic governance in churches and in the world uh, and the influence of apostles and prophets, a way of conceptualizing that that has emerged with this idea of the new apostolic reformation. And what's very important for us, and I, I think Fred uh, is something that, that for Fred is also very important, is what do we mean by that? Because there's a lot of people, uh, there's a, a renewed interest up to a certain extent in, um, in American journalism, uh, where we see uh, references to the New Apostolic Reformation as something, you know, that people are discovering. And there's all sorts of definitions uh, to try to make sense of that. And there are good scholars that are working on that uh, and have maybe a, a slightly different perspective than the one that I speak of in my book. But for me, what was very uh, significant and important was to go back to the primary sources, meaning reading C. Peter Wagner, who is actually credited with coining this term, New Apostolic Reformation. Mm -hmm. But what I explain in the preface is that C. Peter Wagner did not invent this. And it, it, he did not invent this movement that we now call the New Apostolic Reformation. He labeled something that he already saw as existing. Uh, 
You know, C. Peter Wagner was a missiologist, was a theologian who worked at Fuller Theological Seminary for over 30 years. He had been uh, himself a missionary in Bolivia for several years, and he was very much interested in church growth and church growth across the world. How come certain churches grow and others don't? And what he realized is that most of the churches that grew were types of churches that we can label as charismatically leaning, where with strong leaders uh, that function a bit like CEOs <laughs> more than pastors, you see? Uh, they are literally religious entrepreneurs, uh, religious managers. And they bring forth and they make their churches grow, eh? And they, and they establish all sorts of, you know, uh, you know, very loosely tied networks amongst similar uh, types of groups and churches and leaders that share common ideas. Mm -hmm. And for him, this move that for him started in 1900, you see, it started at the beginning of the 20th century. And he identifies, and I say this in my preface, he identifies specific moves throughout the 20th century, which he calls components of the NAR, components of the New Apostolic Reformation. And he says in 2001, America lived its second apostolic age. And this is where he starts really emphasizing this idea of, oh, this worldwide movement, new apostolic reformation that we're going to call it, and it's going to focus on apostolic governance and how churches now need to be run. And that will eventually not just affect churches, but affect society in general and their view of politics. Right. And just to clarify, when you use the term charismatic, is it correct yeah. to say speaking in tongues? Okay, that's more, it's more than that. Okay, please explain. Because speaking, yeah, because this, you know, when we talk about charismatic or Pentecostal or things like that, essentially what we, we talk about are people that emphasize the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And they adhere to what is called in the Bible, the gifts of the Spirit. Mm -hmm. Now, the gifts of the Spirit are supernatural manifestations and abilities that Christians are given by the Holy Spirit in order to build and edify the body of Christ, in order to build the church. And amongst those gifts, there is, of course, the gift of speaking in tongues and the interpretation of tongues. But there are other gifts like prophecy, healing, miracles, uh, the power to discern evil spirits, exorcisms, and, and, and things like that. So when we talk about charismatics slash Pentecostals, they have a propensity towards this idea of spiritual gifts. Okay, so it's not just speaking in I tongues. appreciate that okay? clarification. And can I ask a stupid question maybe? And that is, do they look down on the Catholic Church and other mainstream Christian groups um, in their it's, outlook and their practice? Yeah. The thing is, when we talk about uh, the power or the, the experience of the Spirit, that has also extended itself to Catholic groups. So see. You see, like in the 60s, we had the charismatic renewal. So the charismatic renewal, you had amongst that, you had major mainline denominations like Catholics and Episcopalians and Methodists and all of that experience, in a sense, 
the Pentecostal experience of Azusa Street, you see, at, at the beginning of the 20th century, this, this speaking in tongues and the gift and an and openness to the gift of the, of the gifts of so the Spirit. So I'm, I'm now, so they're not necessarily uh, looking down on other denominations, but often what they will say, people in, the, in, this, in this kind of environment, they will say, you are a Christian, but you, are, you do not have the fullness of the Spirit, mm -hmm. okay? You need to experience the fullness of the Spirit, and that comes through a realization that God gives spiritual gifts, comes through the notion or the idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and so on. So they look down in, in an implied way. One more quick okay, question, and then to you, Fred. I think you're being yeah. too kind, <laughs> Andre. Go ahead. The, uh, uh, the, 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 the new apostolic leaders who we're talking about, uh, yeah. you know, uh, I don't think it's a question of looking down. It's actually recognizing that these other people who are not filled with the Spirit, right, and not going in these theological directions, are not really Christians, right? And that was my understanding. And, and and that there are political implications for that. So if you're if you're a, a progressive Catholic priest, you know you're not really a Christian. If you're if you're a pro-choice, pro-marriage equality Protestant, you're not really a Christian. And that that's what I thought. And, and as they seek, you know, a greater role in government. The, and uh, and, and they you redefine religious freedom in terms of well religious freedom for what we want to do but not necessarily what you want to do. It begins to have political implications that erode all notions of religious pluralism and separation of church and state as uh, as foundational aspects of society. And I'll say one other thing as Andre sort of touched on this, and that's the uh, when we talk about apostolic governance in the church, what are we talking about here? Uh, it's the it's the role of say that two thousand years of Christian institution building and leadership went in the wrong direction. That uh, that that the Book yeah. of Ephesians, which names you know apostles, prophets, teachers, evangelists, and what am I missing, Andre? <laughs> Pastors. Pastors. <laughs> taken these five functions taken together are what the leadership of the church needs to be. You know, mm -hmm. and that. Uh, uh, although some of them are called bishops, the role of bishop, as we would understand it in a Catholic and Protestant mm. setting, is is not a real thing. A pope is not a real thing. These are these are false offices. But understanding that they are on, they're, what they are doing is unraveling, right, and challenging, and uh, uh, decomposing where they can institutional Christianity as we understand it, which is a really big and difficult task. They're making it up as they go along, but nevertheless, that's the unambiguous goal of everything that they say. Yeah, thank yeah. you. And, and, it's, and it's important to add that what's, what Fred was saying is really focusing on new apostolic reformation, because you'll have you know, general Pentecostals or general charismatics that won't necessarily have that perspective in terms of other right. religions. But if we focus really on NAR and how even uh, even C. Peter Wagner talked about the religious spirit, huh? uh, which is a a, a kind of uh, uh, you know traditional uh, type of way of doing Christianity, which is not really true Christianity in the end. In that sense, yes. But if we focus more on 
because my answer was more around. Well, you're the an academic, of, dude. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I get that you're a scholar. I respect that. I have a PhD. Yeah, 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 I understand yeah, you yeah, have to yeah, speak yeah, in a yeah. certain way. I, I, I kind of wear it. Yeah, yeah. And and it's just making those d distinctions right. between NAR and maybe general Pentecostals or, or that would but not be. The NAR folks have basically taken over the leadership yeah. of much of the evangelical yeah. world. Exactly. You know, and, uh, exactly. and ma many people who are not Pentecostal or charismatic are adopting aspects of, of NAR ideas yes. and practices. Yes. And, yes. uh, and yeah. we, we see it, for example, right, in some of our political leaders, like there's this guy, uh, Charlie Kirk, right, who had an important uh, right-wing youth uh, political organizer. Mm. He talks now about the seven mountains of dominion. Yeah, That's what I was going to ask you to which talk very, about. Which we'll talk about some more in just a sec, you know, but the idea that yeah. somebody who does not come out of this world is talking, taking a, a core theological and political idea and using it as an organizing tool going into the next elections is really quite uh, an astounding thing. It speaks to the uh, to the the political and religious influence that this movement has beyond sort of the the the, the little the, the contours of the the categories that we have to use in order to explain these things. Yep, mm. and I wanted to ask you to comment on the Heritage Foundation's Project Twenty Twenty. Five was it the nine hundred page tome where they, yet, with, so. <laughs> if they if they take over the government all the things they're going to do and and uh, peel back the rights of everyone who isn't part mm. of their ilk basically yeah. Yeah. and uh, it's scary because I I I haven't read the whole thing but I heard someone talk who had read the whole <laughs> thing and pulled out yeah. some of the high points or the low points, depending on your perspective. So Andre, you want to do yeah. the, the Seven Mountains of Dominion? Yeah, in fact, uh, Kirk talked about that even in 2020. He was at a, a big, big rally with Rob McCoy at one point, and he uh, even went to the uh, CPAC and, and mentioned and said, clearly, finally, we have a president that understands the Seven Mountains mandate. So very, like, like he's been talking about that since 2020. And that's a lab uh, that, now concept or that term? Or? Yeah, it's it's actually something that Lance Walnow popularized. Got it. This idea of seven mountains or seven spheres or molders or whatever, that came out of reflections or at least, you know, Bill Bright and Lauren Cunningham said they, they both had this kind of revelation in, in 1975 about, you know, society being kind of divided in seven molders or mountains. You want to name them? Uh, yeah, there's politics, education, uh, the family, arts and media. Um, business. Uh, business. Uh, ed we, we said education, I think. Uh, or education. And uh, religion. Uh, the mountain of religion is one also. Uh, so essentially what the seven mountains, and, and, and Walnow is the, really the one that popularized that. He took mm. that over and, and really made, made it his uh, marketing idea. Mm -hmm. But the seven mountains mandate is uh, really a mobilizing, it's, it's a strategy to mobilize Christians in order to fulfill the dominion mandate. Because the thing is, their political theology, which I call a political theology of power, is dominionism or what sometimes is referred to as dominion and that you know fred has provided a fantastic uh definition on of that 
uh, where Christians are, it's a theocratic idea where Christians are called by God to exercise authority in all aspects of society by taking control of political and social and cultural institutions. That's dominion. And it's based on a particular reading and understanding of the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, about God uh, giving dominion to humankind. But that's a general creation mandate that they take for themselves. Yeah, an opposite of what Jesus said about leave politics to the... Yeah, yeah. And (laughs) and Jesus, when he was offered uh, by Satan in his uh, temptation, uh, one of the temptations is, if you bow down to me, I will give you all these kingdoms. And Jesus refused the kingdoms. So, which is very interesting. He refused to take over uh, the kingdoms. So, So, but what's interesting is that they have a political theology of power, mm. which is rooted in scripture. That's fine. But how do you get people to accomplish that? The seven mountain mandate is the goal. The seven mountain mandate becomes the mobilizing strategy to get things done. So it's in order to get people uh, in high places, Christians, influential Christians, especially those that embrace NAR ideas in top uh, leadership roles in politics or education or or the media. Didn't Mark or, or, Bar- Bar- isn't Mark Barnett uh, at the top of the media thing? Didn't he do The Apprentice and Survivor and all these other things? Isn't he deeply I, I, involved? I know that they saw. I know that they saw Trump at the top of that mountain yeah. when he was, <laughs> you know, leading that show and when he was mastering Twitter. Rob McCoy, a famous pastor of a Thousand Oaks in California, said of Trump, uh, you know, he occupied the, ma- the mountain of, uh, of media uh, because he, had, uh, he was influential on Twitter. He occupied the mountain of business because the Trump name is, is known across the world. So who better than Trump to help Christians conquer the Seven Mountains mandate? So Trump becomes like a facilitator. This is why they... They, 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 they liked Trump because he would facilitate their access to the mountains of culture. But don't we also have the problem with, with these uh, apostles and prophets who claim to uh, talk to God, who prophesied that Trump would win 2020, and despite all evidence, they are still sticking with their prophecy, and their followers are blind devotees of them, their apostle or their prophet, and so they will not accept the fact that even Trump appointees and every 40-plus judges said, nope, the election wasn't stolen and Trump lost. All of which is proof yeah. that the Democratic Party and liberals and and uh, the, the institutions of democracy that validated the election are all infused with demons and are the problem, right? They are the problem, right? If they don't <sighs> deliver what uh, God and his prophets have said, they are the problem. And this yeah. is really important to get our minds around this idea. This is reality for these folks. What we're talking about is, uh, is, is just another demonic delusion. Yeah, and what I say is they, in my yeah. opinion, as a mental health person, that's delusional, yeah. what they're telling their followers, because mm-hmm. I was in a mind control cult run by a Korean who said he was 10 times greater than Jesus. So understanding going into the next mm-hmm. elections, right, that these are folks who 
understand they're not up against you know a political candidate with whom they may differ religiously and politically they're 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 battling for the territory of the united states and the world right it for right for, for for building the kingdom institutions like insufficiently christian or incorrect christians are institutions that are in the way right yeah uh, courts and uh, and uh, and uh, and and clerks in charge county clerks in charge of elections you know they're in the way, and they're yeah. problems to be dealt with, you know, quite aside from electoral and democratic processes. Yeah, and Fred, it, yeah. you taught me when I was researching the cult of Trump about the Manhattan Declaration. Yes. Could you, could you explain to our listeners what that was about? Uh, well, sure. And some of our NAR figures fig figure into this, but it's a it was a broad, uh, uh, well. For a long time, evangelicals and Catholics didn't get along politically and uh, and, and religiously, and uh, you know, pointing figures at each other about who's correct. But they, uh, but they shared a common uh, cultural agenda, and they felt mm. that uh, uh, you know, increasing uh, separation of church and state, uh, increase of abortion access, marriage equality, and what they perceived as a as a as a culture that's oppressing their religious freedom was something that they shared in common. Mm -hmm. Decades of theological dialogue allowed them to finally uh, come up with this joint manifesto that was primarily authored by this Catholic uh, legal scholar, Robert P. George. And mm -hmm. it basically uh, said that there are three things that they have in common, life, marriage, and religious freedom, and that they can build a, a common political agenda around that. And for the first time in the history of Christianity and in the political history of the United States, you had, you know, 50 top Catholic prelates, Catholic, you know, cardinals and bishops and important theologians signing a common document with important evangelical leaders and people like, and the political leaders like uh, Ralph Reed, you know, and, and a smattering of, uh, of Orthodox. And so some 500 were the original <clears throat> signatories, well-known names. And they got some 500,000 other people to sign on to this. This became the operating agenda for the Christian right uh, after whatever the, the year was, 2007, 2009, uh, 2009. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, a year into the Obama administration. So you would see the websites of all the Christian right groups and even the, the, uh, the National Conference of Catholic Bishops change their websites to say, we're in favor of life, you know, traditional marriage and religious freedom, you know, in that order. Right. That, Which means against women's right to choose, against gay rights, and wanting to give them more power to discriminate against minorities or other religious perspectives. And just one last point of speak how powerful an idea this was and how unifying an idea it was. <clears throat> I'm old enough to remember Mitt Romney's acceptance speech at the 2012 Republican convention in his nomination for president, you know, three years after the beginning of the Manhattan Declaration. He went out of his way as a Mormon, right, whose who's, who's religious views are going to be suspect, to say that mm. he stood for life, marriage, and religious freedom. Mm. He knew exactly what he was saying and who he was saying it to. Yep. Yeah. And so this is so vital. 
And I'm so frustrated. I'm sure you guys are too with the media's ignorance about what's actually happening and how our freedoms and our institutions are under assault. Uh, science is under assault. Experts are under assault. Democratic institutions, our whole judiciary uh, is getting remade in the image of the uh, the right and, and uh, mm. libertarianism, not even conservative, mm. but mm. libertarianism and nihilism. Mm. It's scary. And, and what's what, what what's interesting um, is that at least media are starting to pick up a bit on the issue of new apostolic reformation, especially when we start thinking in terms of January 6th, uh, you know, in terms of spiritual warfare ideas. Uh, I have an entire chapter in, in this book uh, mm -hmm. that deals chapter three with the issue of spiritual warfare and uh, civil war. And, and um, it really unpacks what they mean by that, because a lot of people think, oh, you know, demons, uh, you know, Paula White Kane praying uh, and, and taking authority and binding spirits. Uh, she, she's a nutcase. You know, the, a lot of people think it's just, these people that think like that, and that's it. And and they're they're probably all crazy. The thing is, people need to take this very seriously yes. because it has political uh, consequences. When pa Paula Kane, for example, in in twenty twenty one, was actually at the Amway Center during the which is uh, a multi level uh, marketing cult that I criticize. Yeah, but but where she was in front of twenty thousand people, yeah. Trump was actually kicking off his re-election campaign. Mm. Uh, it's, it's quite interesting to see, uh, not in 2021, 2019, sorry, uh, when she was praying, uh, the way that she was praying, the type of prayers that she was emitting in front of 20,000 people about binding spirits and protecting uh, Donald Trump against the demonic networks that are going that are coming against him. What she's doing, she's not just praying to God or praying against demonic forces, but she's also speaking to twenty thousand people. You see, by labeling Trump's political adversaries as being under demonic influence, and 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 you see, this is why when we talk about the Christian right, it's not the old Christian right. It's something completely different. And people think, oh, this is the old Christian right with the moral majority at the time. And it's not that. Now we're in a completely new paradigm of demonizing political adversary, adversaries, dehumanizing them in order to completely negate and, uh, their, their political And I'll add fourth generation warfare online, on social media platforms where people are sleep deprived and they're getting these videos and messages eight hours a day, reinforcing over and over and over again lies mm -hmm. that they then accept as truth because authority figures are saying it they mm. you know and and they're they're mm. repeating the the big lie theory of uh, Goebbels yeah. and hitler right yeah one thing i want to help with here and that is you know as we start out with most people find this stuff crazy right and hard to understand and yeah. it's new to them and they can't yeah. believe that they didn't know about this before and is it really as important as these guys are saying and uh you know how come i'm not seeing it in the media and these are all fair questions Fortunately, Andre's book, you know, is part as a partial answer to that. 
It's not just any book. It's a really thin book that is <laughs> yep. a, that's that's very accessible. You know, yes, it, it deals with stuff in a scholarly way, but it's an accessible language, you know, for an otherwise reasonably well-informed reader. So it's a primer. It's like you yes. want to begin somewhere. You want to begin here. There's other great books on the Christian right. Mm -hmm. We've talked about them mm -hmm. on this on this podcast, but. You know, begin here. Begin with Andre's book, and it will probably give you the the opening that you need. And and Fred's book, Eternal Hostility, which is a quote from Jefferson, if I remember. It is. Uh, oh, yeah. Share that quote, uh, Fred. <laughs> oh, it, uh, of, the, of your book. It was uh, the, the quote is from a letter that uh, Jefferson wrote to uh, to a friend of his. It says after smear campaigns against him, you know, during the election of 1800. He was, they, people were so afraid in New England, they had, had to run and hide their Bibles because they afraid the agents of Jefferson were going to come and get them, right? And uh, so he said, I've sworn on the altar of God eternal hostility against every form of tyranny over the mind of man. And that quote is inscribed inside the rotunda of the Jefferson Memorial in, in Washington. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And and a lot of the the right wingers uh, are well, we got to go back to the founders and we got to go back to the Constitution, mm -hmm. but they don't they haven't read anything mm -hmm. that indicates that the founders are really clear about the abuse of power that could be wrought through by using religion uh, to, to co-opt people's uh, ability to think for themselves and reason. Well, one of the lessons in my looking at this over, over the years is that, you know, the, uh, the religious right of the 18th century didn't like the constitution when it was written, actively opposed its ratification because mm -hmm. article six says there will be, you know, no religious test for public office anywhere in the United States. No religious test. I mean, you can't. You don't have to be a Christian to hold public office. Well, that's right. So, but the religious right lost in the 18th century. But they've been trying to regroup and re, re uh, fight these battles ever since. There's always going to be a sector of society that's not going to accept the equality of other people's views and religious mm -hmm. and religious ideas and institutions, and. The idea of defending pluralism, the rights of everyone else, even mm. with people with whom mm. we disagree religiously, politically, that's what the American experiment is, right? It's yeah. not something else. It's that. And yeah. uh, unless we get that, unless we figure out how to defend you know, each other's rights you know, uh, under the law, you know, there's always going to be this, this theocratic rump faction that's going to keep trying to regrow like a, like a recurrence of cancer, right? to undermine those very democratic values and institutions. Mm. This is the situation yep. we're in, in in a way that's worse than any time in American history. Yeah, it's incredibly important. And I'll just add, people don't realize that the American you know, currency didn't have in God we trust uh, before 1952. Mm. This was uh, a, a religious political move mm. to, uh, mm. to 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 insert God into our sure. in, into our money system. And Fred has been writing on this for a long, long time. So if he tells you there hasn't been a situation <laughs> that is as urgent as now, 
uh, I think we we need to really uh, take heed of Absolutely. that. Absolutely. And, uh, and yeah. uh, Fred, I want to ask you just comment about Project Blitz because I remember sure. over the years you were like, we got this plan. We have to do Blitz mm -hmm. Watch. We have to educate people. There's a plan to go into states and take over state governments and school boards. You knew that because you had the plan. <laughs> But people were not listening to you <laughs> in, in the way that they needed to, in my opinion. Well, you know, a coalition of groups put together blitzwatch.org, and the website still exists, and we issue a, a periodic newsletter updating Project Blitz. But, but what was that? Uh, well, Project Blitz was, a, uh, was a, a legislative manual, right, and a network of, state, of, of Christian rights state legislators across the country. And the genius of it is that... Uh, is that they got together and said, well, you know, we've been trying all these various things across the country all this time. You know, what have we learned, you know, from our best successes and our worst failures? And uh, what's the distillation of that wisdom? What's the best practice and what's sort of the best generic uh, kind of legislation to put forward? And that's what the Project Blitz manual became. The, the, <laughs> what they have learned and uh, and taking it forward as a set of model legislation that people in what they call prayer caucuses and some 35 state legislatures, you know, would then shape according to the local uh, legislative need and circumstance and, and the politics of the occasion. It became a really important part of the legislative agenda of the Christian right, the ripple effects, you know, we're still seeing. But uh, there, the bill that was most popular and most introduced, and where it actually succeeded in a lot of states, was a bill requiring posting uh, posters or other displays of uh, In God We Trust in the public schools and other public buildings. Hmm. Yep. So, listen, uh, it's, it's 2024, uh, and there just seems to be ever-increasing uh, steps towards inducing chaos, uncertainty, fear, anxiety. A lot of people are overwhelmed. They're looking for what to do. Uh, and what we don't want them to do is tune out and play video games and binge watch movies. We want them to educate themselves and become active. So I'd like to ask, um, what do we do? Like I'm, I'm doing this podcast, but I'm hoping someone will be listening going, I need to learn more about this, getting Andre's book, getting Frederick's book. <laughs> but then, then what? What do we do? I'm going to ask you to start, Fred, <laughs> and then Andre. Well... <laughs> You know, since since, since we, we've, we've started out with this with the idea that there's a whole bunch of stuff that we don't know that we need to know, uh, yes. that's where we begin. Begin with Andre's book and, you know, find like-minded people who share the same concerns. But my advice in that is that the goal is to, find, is to create a, a, enough common knowledge among one another and enough common vocabulary among one another. You're going to hear a lot of stuff, right? This is really important. Right. There's this crazy guy over here, and there, everybody has a different name for everything, right? Stop yes. that. <laughs> Just stop it, you know? Say, mm -hmm. these are the terms we're going to use, and let's agree upon them so that we know what each other is talking about when we talk. Then mm -hmm. we can develop some Good kind point. of strategy. Once we understand that there's this whole uh, organized movement that has a supernatural vision uh, of, of uh, 
uh, of political reality and are opposed to democratic institutions and people who hold to those values, then you could say, well, you know, we have this anti-democratic movement going on. And we can begin to figure out how personally, you know, we maybe we can relate to our neighbors and say, well, maybe I'm not really as demonic as you may think I am. So there's a personal element to it. And there's a political element too, unless you recognize that there's this uh, uh, tremendous anti-democratic political force that's organizing itself. You're not going to figure out democratic ways to counter that, you know? Yeah. And you have to know yeah. that there are people are never going to accept the outcomes. How does a yeah. culture, do we deal with that, you know? Yeah. And if we yeah. really yeah. believe in, in democratic pluralism, you know, how do we really figure out what it means to defend the rights of our neighbors? And um, right. that's, uh, that's hard because as a culture, we've not been, uh, we, we've taken these things for granted tremendously. And figuring out that yeah. the time for taking things for granted is over is an important first step. Yeah, and I will. And taking, take, yeah, go ahead, taking them very, yeah, 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 very seriously. Stop just dismissing that these are, what Fred was saying, these people are crazy, it's not going to happen, uh, Trump is going to go to prison, whatever. Stop that. Focus on learning, but also what I what we see is that uh, journalism shapes a lot the public opinion, and and uh, this is why we are doing this. This is why my book I think is is accessible. This okay, it's like academic, but it's accessible. Fred and I have been writing a lot on the new apostolic reformation. We've created pieces to kind of uh, reporter's guides on how to define certain terms, uh, how we use them, uh, labeling things correctly, uh, making sure that we get the language right. These are important things because, you know, like Fred was saying, we're going to hear stuff left and right. People using spiritual warfare terms don't understand what they mean. Right. That has happened throughout the first Trump presidency. You remember the 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 uh, satanic preg pregnancies <laughs> of of Paula White Kane and how people got that wrong? Yeah. I explained that in the book. Mm -hmm. And 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 when you do that and when you when you get things wrong, you make a case for them. Yeah. You see, you play into their hands and saying, you see, they don't understand what we're talking about. They're persecuting us, and, and so on. Right. So let's get the the story right. Yep and talk about it and people yes. take it seriously. So I wanna amplify your point and say, you guys need to do media training. And I like to believe my work yeah. studying brainwashing and mind control and my influence continuum and bite model is part of that conversation mm -hmm. to help people identify this is ethical influence. These are the mm -hmm. criteria. This is unethical influence. This is, you know, creating dependent, obedient pseudo identities. Um, and the good news is a lot of people are leaving these extremist groups and some of them want to share their story. And these need mm -hmm. to be amplified. And that's what I'm trying to do. I've interviewed Alva Johnson, um, Rich Logis, Pam Hemphill, who was in, uh, arrested at January 6th and served two months. I'm trying to amplify the voices of people who've exited this bubble. And then I also want to just comment that it seems to me that the, the uh, Cokes and the fossil fuel 
countries, Putin especially, uh, they don't want regulation to stop global warming. They've been doing the disinformation campaign for 50 years using my former cult, the Moonies and the Washington Times, as the major disinformation uh, agency. Um, we need to name the bad actors that have agendas, and it's not just religious agendas, but money and power uh, agendas. But we also, I believe, need to go after billionaires, many of whom have been co-opted to believe in libertarianism and Ayn Randianism, selfishness is good and altruism is evil and, you know, just agents of foreign governments who've been paid off or blackmailed. We need to understand there's a war going on here to destroy the United States of America and freedom around the world for everyone. And it's not just here. Yeah, I should add yeah. two things in that regard. One is that uh, we, we've talked a great deal about Donald Trump and the NAR. But uh, I recall, you know, before the last election, you know, a, a group of apostles on, on what they call a prayer call, right? You know, praying for uh, for various things. And they were praying not only for uh, for the election of Donald Trump, but of Netanyahu and Bolsonaro in Brazil, with whom they also have profound relationships. Mm, yes. And so it's important mm. to see that the, the it's not, and it's not just prayer, there's actors on the ground in these countries as well as others. Mm. These were just mm. the focus countries of them in the last election. So as you said, Stephen, at the, at, at the outset, there are elections going on in a lot of countries right now, and we're going to be seeing yep. similar kinds of actors doing similar kinds of things. It's a worldwide yeah. uh, matter. Yeah. And uh, yep. I want yep. to add just for many, many of, of, of your listeners, Steve, the readers of your books, that we talk about the New Apostolic Reformation now, but it has roots in cultic groups of the 1970s and 80s that were generally known as the Shepherding Discipleship Movement. And Thank the you. kinds of abuses that were going on then, you know, partly corrected, perhaps partly not, but many of the same people are still involved, have become leaders in the New Apostolic Reformation. People who were shepherds, like uh, oh, Dennis Peacock comes to mind as one important mm -hmm. shepherd who was mm -hmm. politically active then, and oh, he's politically active now, and in mm -hmm. very similar kinds of ways. So there's a certain continuity, it's just that uh, things have, uh, have become reorganized. Right. Yep. Relabeled. And I'll add, yeah. you know, I'm so glad you mentioned that because that when I started my work helping exit counsel people who are in all types of destructive cults, I did a lot of work with shepherding, discipling cults. And again, it's this issue of you can't have a relationship with Jesus directly. You need a discipler or a shepherd over you who you treat as if they were Jesus who you submit and obey completely, even to the point of going over your entire day in 15-minute increments and reporting back and getting permission to even who you're going to date or if you can date or if you can kiss and who you can marry, etc. So this notion of submission and obedience to some human being who's the ultimate authority who's representing God is the key theme. And I'm really glad you, you brought that up, mm. uh, Fred. Thank you. And keeping in mind, too, we talked earlier about uh, the, the change in church governance. I mean, most of the Protestant world, right, have, uh, elect their own leaders, their own mm -hmm. you know, councils mm -hmm. of elders or whatever they call them. Yeah. They select yeah. their own pastors, yeah. right? Yeah. That's out mm -hmm. the window with apostolic governance. 
Paul right. White Cain became the pastor, the white pastor of an all-black congregation in Florida, hmm. and very within a year said, "We're we're now an apostolic ministry, right?" And she she and yeah. her and her family became the apostolic leaders of the congregation by fiat. Yeah. And yep. this is what happens. Yeah. And the, as bad as that is, the tr the the challenge, the, the tragedy for democracy is that these kinds of democratic religious congregations is where many people learn and practice democracy in the first place. Yes. Yes. You know, there are not yes. there are fewer and fewer institutions that are democratically organized, whether they're nonprofit mm. political groups or labor unions. Mm. All these democratic institutions are are uh, you know becoming smaller, and so the people's opportunity mm. to learn about. Robert's Rules of Order, you know, how do you run a meeting? How do you, mm. what, what does it mean to be an elected mm -hmm. representative? Uh, that kind of mm -hmm. pr practice and experience is, uh, is, is decreasing. And the, the, the New Apostolic Reformation is part of the leadership of decreasing that democratic capacity. Mm. That, that's so important, yes. in fact. In chapter two of my book, I talk about apostles as political uh, entrepreneurs, you see, and uh, I give it a, 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 a case study of a church in Canada that went from a church to an apostolic and became an apostolic center, you see, and how they went through that process of going from a democratically run institution or, or congregation to one that is now led by an apostle. And there's transitions that, that go this way, where democracy is, is simply thrown out the window. And, and so these, these apostolic centers become incubators of dominion yep. and reproduce disciples. This is what it means to have apostles in the marketplace. They become training centers to make apostles in the marketplace go back into their own spheres of influence and exercise what they learn yeah. in their apostolic center. Yeah, and infiltrate uh, <laughs> South America, Africa, all over the world. I want to come back to the, the democratic experiment. We didn't want to have a king. We wanted to have checks and balances <laughs> of power to, uh, to uh, minimize abuse of power. Mm -hmm. And what I'm hearing now are people who are in this mindset, we need a dictator. You know, we're, we don't mind if Trump wants to be a dictator and weaponize mm -hmm. the Department of Justice because mm -hmm. this will mm -hmm. do, you know, because he's like a King Cyrus figure. So he he'll do yeah. he'll do God's work for us. And this yeah. is the opposite of what the entire <laughs> experiment of American democracy is about. Yes. Well, it's one really important point of that. Yeah. That is that we, that we we've talked about these things, including that very kind of point. But the New Apostolic Reformation is broader than that, right? There are some people who are definitely like that. They want a king-like figure, a King Cyrus, uh, the people who brought us January 6th, the people we're talking about as Christian nationalists on the day. They were mostly NAR people. But mm -hmm. there are parts of the NAR movement that think all that stuff is, uh, is, is dangerous and heretical and damaging to their movement. And, mm. and you know, it, it acts of vanity and egotism in exactly the way you would describe them, Steve. And mm -hmm. they they believe in uh, in many of the same same things, but uh, and they would like to see a uh, a theocratic Christian kind of governance, right? But they they're they're slow motion long term revolutionaries. They're, they're mm -hmm. not necessarily 
big flamboyant, big ego kinds of figures giving big speeches on the mall. Mm -hmm. Their their methodical approach to these things is, in its own way, just as dangerous. Right? If we mm -hmm. get past the current movement of, uh, of, uh, of the big flamboyant January 6th types, these guys are still going to be operating in this generation and the next. Now, one of the leaders of this, mm. of this faction is a guy named Joseph Matera, who has a church mm. in Brooklyn, New York, right? Mm. Brooklyn. And, he's, uh, and he's, uh, uh, he was a top apostle, right, of the United States Coalition of Apostolic Leaders. He's not just an apostle of a network of followers. He's an apostle of apostles, right? Mm. And he was one of the original signers of the Manhattan Declaration. Wow. So it, it's important to see these guys in, in uh, the kind of broader political context that they really are, as important as uh, uh, as Dutch Sheets and Chuck Pierce and the people on January 6th mm -hmm. are. These guys are mm -hmm. just as important in their own way because they provided uh, mm -hmm. the, 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 the intellectual, the, the, the infrastructure for everything that's happening. Right. Yeah, they're more Christian Reconstructionist, slow motion kind of patient change than the you know like what fred is saying this flamboyant turnover uh, from one thing to another very very uh, quickly right yeah. so i guess i want to come back to my expertise which is a brainwashing chinese communist political brainwashing of the 50s and we know that the government uh has re-education programs with uyghur muslims wanting to make them good Ch uh, han chinese etc and from my perspective, and challenge me if you don't agree, but it seems to me like governments, state actors, and other people who really are about power want to use proxy groups that are religious, like the Moonies, to do their dirty work for them and cloak it as religious freedom. And you can't criticize religions because one person's cult is another person's religion. And there's this whole propaganda thing that I see happening, uh, orchestrated by Scientology, the Moonies, Synanon was involved when Synanon was around back in the 70s, to create this religious freedom cloak to cover basically political and financial enterprises. What do you think, Fred and Andre? Well, yeah, the idea of a, of a governmental leaders and political institutions, you know, wanting to uh, uh, own and control or manipulate and influence religion is nothing new. That's, that's a given, you know, throughout history. And uh, what's, what, what's different in the case of, of uh, cultic kinds of groups, you know, is the, is the degree of control they exert within the group and can therefore mm -hmm. direct their political activities. Right, they become mm -hmm. so soldiers to the politician, and we certainly saw that with the Shepherd Discipleship Movement. A lot of the Pat Robertson political campaign was full of Shepherd Discipleship leaders, and that's right. that's how that goes. So, because there's the controversial practices of, uh, of deprogramming and you know illegally and violently taking people out of their religious communities and saying you're not going to believe that anymore. That becomes the tail that wags the dog, right? Yeah, that was 76, 77. I was involved with helping people get out of the Moonies for one year. 
to this day, Scientology says that I'm an anti-religious bigot who does that, which I well, sure, decried you, you, that You, you did that, and you're sorry about that at that one episode, but the idea mm -hmm. of this one particular kind of approach, right, yeah. is used to define the entire question of, of cults and control, right? And mm. you don't see any of the people that are concerned about these things, concerned about the violence and, uh, and crimes that are committed against their own members by abusing their own power. I've yet to hear yes. a single person concerned about these things speak about these kinds of internal reforms that were needed. If they were authentic critics, they would be concerned about the entire human experience within Great point. You know, a tightly controlled religious groups. So is, does religious freedom right, give you the right to abuse and control others? Or is religious freedom about liberating the conscience so people can make their own decisions? Mm. And love yeah. and compassion yeah. and charity yeah. and and yeah. being open-minded uh, is another critical mm -hmm. thing that has helped the human yeah. species to evolve rather than going, I know the truth and I'm not going to be open to yeah. thinking in any other way than what I've been taught. Exactly. I mean, fundamentalism exactly. runs against that kind of stuff even without a specific cultic kind of set of practices. But uh, yeah. so there's sort of a, a continuum, if you will, Steve, you know, of these kinds of things. Yes. But uh -huh. traditional Baptist views hold that, it, you know, it's the right of individual conscience. You have your own relationship with God. And the most uh -huh. important single thing is you need to come to your own decision, right? right. Without uh, some yeah. you know, clerical intermediary, without some powerful government institution telling you what to do. The Baptists, you know, more than anybody else originated the idea of separated church and state because it was mm -hmm. the purpose of separation of church and state is to protect the right of individual conscience to make their own decisions. Yeah. Right. And I need to come back That's to fine. you, Andre, because you were a pastor in an NAR, decided to study the Bible, became a scholar, and you teach Bible. And I mm -hmm. believe you have a YouTube where you are teaching, mm -hmm. you know, what does the Bible say and what is the context and how do we do proper you know, theological evaluations. Yeah, yeah no, no, for sure. Uh, yeah, I had, I was a pastor for several years. We adopted, we weren't a, a, maybe an official NAR, mm. but we adopted a lot of the ideas of the NAR. Mm -hmm. So Wagner would have probably said, okay, if he knew us, oh, okay, you're part of the NAR. Mm -hmm. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but yes, when I, I started going to university, I started looking at all of these questions uh, from an academic perspective, uh, things that I have never learned in my own context. Right. You see, we were just reading the Bible for what it was. We were never asking very much anything in terms of historical questions on how the Bible came about. Uh, what does it mean? How do we interpret scripture? How was scripture interpreted through time? You see the reception, the, the reception of scripture, that means the interpretation of the Bible through time, yes. how that shapes the way people read the Bible today, how are our own experience shape the way uh, we read the Bible today. Well, I, I've never learned about that. So, but in university, they give you tools to be able to make those critical, uh, those critical analysis and contextualize scripture. So this is why some it's in a sense my primary uh, scholarly training is biblical scholarship mm -hmm. and this is why I was interested in what was happening with these neo 
charismatic Pentecostal NAR people and how they use the Bible to legitimize a lot of what they believe and a lot of the, the things that they do. And my goal is to kind of maybe help people see, but you see the way that he's using this text, uh, if you really put it in the context of where this text finds itself, that's actually not what it means. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it actually means often very, very something very, very contrary to what you just uh, say, or you're just taking a part of the Bible to make it what it means. And, and, and you know, like these Christians, and, and we talk about this a lot, uh, how they use so much of the uh, Hebrew Bible or what Christians call the Old Testament. Or we call the and Torah. How they use, or the Torah. And what they use as, uh, you know, they, they constantly refer to war, uh, violent narratives, uh, you know, battles of Jericho, destruction of, by through genocide and yeah, all that. Mostly they use Deuteronomy, these, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And, and they use a lot of these stories mm -hmm. without necessarily going back to how the early Christians, when they read these stories, did not read them literally. Right. That they had developed a new hermeneutic, a new way of understanding these stories in light of their Christian faith, that we're on a different field, a playing field. So the thing is, they're not taking all of this into account. Yeah. They're just going to these texts and say, hey, we got to do and this. And people forget and you, that there's rabbinic interpretation for thousands exactly, of years exactly, that we don't. Exactly. That's the it, same that's word it, for it, a man it, sleeping exactly, with a man is used it. for shellfish, but that you don't that's see it, any it. of these folks that, not eating shrimp yeah, yeah. or lobster. That's that's it. So you, that's it. So that's I see. I see my job a bit as, as doing that yes. too. You know, kind of helping people realize that you know how the Bible is used. Uh, Fantastic. Got to be careful. Thank you, gentlemen, <laughs> so much. We're going to wrap up now. Final words yeah. to you, Fred, and then to you, Andre, and then we'll sign off. Well, sure. And in, in light of what uh, you guys were just talking about. The way that NAR leaders are, are speaking to their followers now is that uh, they're asking them to think of themselves as biblical warriors modeled mm -hmm. on yeah. uh, Joshua or David or Esther, right? And, and uh, they, they cast themselves that way too. The, this this mm -hmm. isn't just a metaphorical kind of thing, looking for inspiration from a superhero. No, you're fighting the, uh, the same kind of battle you know, and in the same way, and that facing the same kind of demonic enemies on, and under God's direction through his apostles and prophets, this is what your mission and role is in this time. Right. And they even use the shofar, the ram's horn, uh, yeah. to, to try to give legitimacy yeah. to their perspective. Yeah. Andre, your, your wrap up. Yes, yes. Thank you, uh, Steve, for this time. Uh, again, I think it's important to, if you want to learn more about uh, the NAR and uh, the, you know, what they believe, what how they act. <laughs> For those uh, on I, the podcast, we're holding up yeah. Andre's book. Uh, you can yes, look at the video yes. on uh, the website. Please, please, uh, please buy the book and uh, 
give it uh, your rating if you can on Amazon. And uh, I think you'll learn a lot through this. It's Definitely. not complicated as a book. It's not long. You can read it easily in two hours. That's great. Thank you, gentlemen, <laughs> so much. Take care. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. That's it for today's episode of The Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Theme music for the podcast is by Nasser Malik. To keep up to date with me and happenings that I think are important, please visit my website at freedomofmind.com. There you'll find in-depth articles about cults, mind control, and other relevant topics. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump, in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience and will really help you grasp the complex web of undue influence. I have also launched a new nine-hour online course for anyone interested in a deep dive into issues related to recovering from undue influence in all forms. While this course is designed for clinicians, everyone can benefit. Remember, love is stronger than mind control. And thanks for listening.